Yeah. No, it's just, and, and it's gotten lower as the years have gone on, you know? It's, <laughs> did you really? I hope it was good. That was such a sweet note, Linda. Thank you so much. That was just made me cry. Made me cry. Jeff committed a felony and opened it up. Jeff committed a felony and opened it up and read it. Yeah, he's, it's okay. Okay, am I recording? Did you start? Because I just said Jeff committed a felony on the, are, have we started? Oh, yay, yeah. Uh, Jeff didn't commit a felony, just so you know. <laughs> he opened a sweet note that Linda Stewart sent to me and read it. <clears throat> but uh, that's not really, I mean, it is, it would be a felony, well, never mind. <laughs> Hi, I'm on drugs. <laughs> I also said that online. Uh, but I'm doing better. I'm doing much better. I'm, I'm upright, which I'm grateful for, and God has been so faithful. Uh, day before yesterday, if you would have told me I could write uh, a lecture before today, I would have told you there's no way, and I did, and you're about to find out if it's any good or not. But um, I'm very grateful to be standing here before you today. Um, I'm going to ask you if you have questions. I'm going to tell you that in the lecture because I think I covered it fairly well in the lesson. I'm not saying anything about um, 16, 9 through 20, about chapter 16, 9 through 20. Yeah, I'm not saying anything. Uh, I want to concentrate on what we know Mark wrote. Um, so if you have questions about that, this is the time to ask, or at lunch afterward we can talk about it too. Also, I want to tell you that the last page of your notes is actually... Um, <coughs> A, a list of prophecies concerning Jesus' passion found in the Psalms, just the Psalms, not all the other places where his prophecies are found. So if you want to use that as you go through Holy Week, um, it's, it's really a neat thing to see. So prophecies in Mark, the passion story in Mark, um, found in the Psalms. So do you have any questions for me? Yes, Cindy. Right. So the three hours of darkness, and, and did God turn his, his back on Jesus? The three, hour of darkness, three hours of darkness I'll talk about a little bit. Did God turn his back on Jesus? I'll talk about a lot. I mean, a lot considering it's this much of a 45-minute lecture. I hope. Any other questions? None? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Um, thank you so much for these ladies. I am so grateful for each and every one of them for being here. And um, thank you for this greatest story ever told. It's not really a story. It's true. It's the good news. It is your plan. And it is such an expression of your love for us, Father. May we see it today as that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just by a quick way of review of what we've seen of the passion of Jesus thus far, Jesus was arrested at night in Gethsemane, and all those closest to him fled. They all ate the bread. They all drank the cup from one cup. They all vowed to not desert him, even to die for him. And they all abandoned him. Even um, um, 
even though they vowed to, to not desert him and to die for him. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Zechariah 13, 7. Jesus was taken to the home of the high priest where his trial began, his completely illegal trial. They charged him with blasphemy for he had equated himself with God, saying in answer to the question, are you the son of God? I am, and you shall see the Son of Man coming with power on the right hand of God. And so they abused him by spitting on and hitting him. And now Jesus is taken early in the morning to stand before Pilate. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of, of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But still... Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So it tells us that very early in the morning, following his trial, the members of the Sanhedrin bound Jesus and led him to Pilate. Now that very early in the morning wasn't unusual. The trial at night was unusual and illegal. But um, Roman, uh, wealthy Romans liked to get up early, get their work done in the morning so that they had the afternoon for leisure pursuits. So uh, early trials before Pilate would have been common. Um, and so they bind Jesus and they take him to Pilate, and they needed Pilate in order to secure a capital crime because the Jews had no power to execute a criminal. So they brought a number of charges against Jesus, uh, hoping that one would work. Remember, it says here, see how many things they've accused you of. But the one that stuck was treason. That Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. He claimed to be a king at a time and in a place where Caesar was king. And that made him, theoretically, a threat to public order and guilty of treason and deserving, theoretically, of death. But Jesus is silent before Pilate. He says almost nothing. Pilate's question to him is actually a sentence. It's, it reads, you are the king of the Jews, as the high priest's question before him. It is a statement you are the king of the Jews. They're making that statement. They're unwittingly confessing who Jesus is. Jesus' answer is neither an admission nor a denial. It is, he says essentially, you say so, or whatever you say. He doesn't say yes or no. But that's all that Jesus said, because it is written, I was silent, I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. And it is written, 
He was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. And Jesus' silence amazed Pilate. I'm sure he had never had a prisoner refuse to defend himself. But Jesus didn't want to defend himself. He wasn't trying to get out of the charges. He had committed to do his Father's will, to drink the full cup of suffering before him. It was a silence of surrender, not defeat. So then Pilate goes to the crowd. Hello. Thank you. That's it. Appreciate it. Now it was the custom at the time of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Yes, Lord? Is that just, is that the drugs? Is it just me? That's so funny. That's all right. That's all right. It was lovely. I probably should have just kept going. Really ethereal. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So Barabbas was, um, may have been an insurrectionist, uh, part of an insurrection, which would have made him a hero to the crowds. Then again, he may have just been a common bandit because the word used for him can be either one. This is what Garland says about this scene. The crowd's choice is ironic. Jesus, who had no interest in causing sedition or social upheaval, will be crucified between two brigands. Barabbas, a brigand guilty of murder, will go free because Jesus has taken his place on the cross intended for him. The crowd chooses the one who takes the lives of of others to achieve his own selfish ends and condemns the one who gives his life for others in obedience to God. So Pilate is then left with a choice, and the choice he makes is to condemn Jesus, even though he knows that Jesus is not worthy of death. Pilate may pity Jesus, but being pitiable is not a capital crime, and Pilate knows it. But Pilate wants to placate the crowds, so he hands Jesus over to be flogged, and crucified. And it begins with this. 
The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him. And they, when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Flogging or scourging was the customary preliminary to any crucifixion. Prisoners were stripped and bound to a post. And they were whipped with what was called a flagellum. And there was no prescribed numbers of whips, numbers of lashes. Just until the soldiers got tired, I guess. And, and this flagellum uh, ha- was a whip with multiple leather thongs. And into each one of those thongs was woven pieces of bone <coughs> or, lead or, or lead or bronze. And the flagellum, when it would hit the victim's skin, it would wrap around a part of their body. And as it was pulled away, it would bring with it flesh in strips off the victim's body. It was fittingly called the scorpion. Many prisoners died before they ever got to the cross. So severe was this practice that even the emperor Domitian was appalled by it. And the soldiers mock Jesus. Ironically, in their mockery, the soldiers are speaking truth, just as Pilate and the high priest did before them. One theologian said this, I think this is wonderful, so powerful is the kingdom that it reaches down even to the hate-filled minds and venomous lips of its foes, drawing unwitting testimony from those who look without seeing. Such was the suffering of our Lord. For it is written, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I, did, I, hid, my, I hid not my face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah 50, verse 6. And with the simple words that they led him out to be crucified, Jesus' crucifixion begins. Crucifixion was a public execution. It was a very public spectacle. Prisoners were crucified next to the busiest roads in every city as a warning to others and as a deterrent. Crucifixion was the cruelest and most painful death ever devised. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the Latin word excruciatus which means out of the cross. Victims slowly died of asphyxiation and muscle fatigue. Some were left to die for days on the cross. In fact, we learn that Pilate was surprised at how quickly Jesus died. Perhaps that was God's mercy. Mark's recounting of Jesus' passion is written with restraint. And maybe that's because his original readers 
knew all too well what crucifixion was. We are not as familiar. We don't understand. We wear one around our necks. And I think we need to hear the details, no matter how disturbing, because this is what our Lord suffered. Beginning at verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So Jesus... um, was forced to carry his cross. Prisoners were forced to carry the cross beam to the site of the crucifixion called the patibulum. So the pictures of Jesus carrying an entire cross are not historically accurate because the upright beam was already firmly planted, firmly embedded in the ground at the site. So they would carry the cross beam on their backs. But Jesus, likely because he, of his weakened state, was unable to carry that crossbeam. So Simon of Cyrene, we're told, was forced to carry it. The word use, that they use for forced is the word that they use for animals of burden forced to work or slaves forced to work. One theologian says this, one of the profound paradoxes of Christianity is to be found in the fact that the one who was not able to carry his own cross is the one who enables us to carry ours. And then they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine mixed with myrrh, had narcotic properties. It was given perhaps to dull the pain, but given that the Romans were not known for their compassion on their victims, it was more likely given to prolong the agony. Why did Jesus not drink it? Well, he had made a vow at the Last Supper not to drink wine wine again until he uh, was in heaven with his disciples. Uh, And that's perhaps because of his vow. But more likely, I believe, it is because he intended to drink the cup of his suffering fully. And they divide his garments, also a common practice, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. And they crucified him. Four simple words. And what we often don't realize is what that entailed. The victim was laid on the ground with his hands outstretched on the crossbeam, And then his arms were either tied to or nailed to that cross. Our Lord's hands, his wrists actually, would have been nailed to that cross. And then he would have been dragged and lifted up, probably disjoining both of his uh, shoulders. And it was placed on the upright beam. And then his legs were put one in front of the other and a nail was drawn, a spike actually, through both of his ankles. And the only way that you can breathe in this position is to push up on the nails to catch a breath. And you stay alive until you can no longer do that. And they crucified him. For it is written, 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. Division of the garments was part of the humiliation of the cross. You see, the victims of crucifixion were crucified naked. It is possible because of Jewish sensibilities, they allowed Jewish prisoners to have a loincloth, but maybe not. For it is written, they divide my clothes then among them and cast lots for my garments. Psalm 22, 18. The Jews think they are in control. The Romans think they are in control. Truly, they are not. God is in control of this situation. And above his head it said this, It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. A sign above the cross displayed the prisoner's crime. Jesus' crime was simply this. He was the king of the Jews. We learn in John that when Pilate wrote that and made that the sign, the, the religious leaders came to him and said, don't say he is the king of the Jews. Say he said he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And he wrote the truth. He is the king of the Jews and more. And then we find that Jesus was derided while he hung there on that cross. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, so, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved himself, they said, but he can't save, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified, him, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. The wagging of heads was a gesture of contempt to ancient Jews. For it is written, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Psalm 27, 7. And their reference to he saved others is a reference to Jesus' healings. Remember we said that that word that he healed them could also say he saved them. And they demand a sign. Come down. We'll believe you. If you get down off that cross, then we'll believe those who demand a sign will never see and will never believe. Because they cannot see that Jesus is rebuilding the temple even while hanging on that cross. It is a temple not made by human hands. It is the new community of believers in whom God's Spirit resides. As David Garland puts it, they cannot 
They, they cannot see that were he to save himself, he could not save others from something more deadly than storms or illnesses. The nails did not hold him fast to the cross. The love of God constrained him. And darkness at noon came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Darkness was associated with mourning and judgment. Jesus said darkening, darkness would announce the great day of the Lord in Mark 13, 24. Ladies, that day has dawned with a new beginning, and it dawned on the cross. For it is written, in that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight, Amos 8, 9. Notice this, though. In Scripture, darkness does not indicate God's absence. Remember this in our next passage, because God appears in darkness a number of times in the Old Testament. And then we come to Jesus' cry on the cross. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are different interpretations of what Jesus said here. And we may never solve the mystery of what Jesus, why Jesus said this and what he meant by it. The most common interpretation uh, and probably the one accepted by the most scholars, including um, um, one of the scholars that I read, is that the sin of the world cut Jesus off from God, that God turned away from Jesus as he hung on the cross, that Jesus was separated from God at that time for the first time in all eternity because he had the world's sin on him. And that may be correct. But remember, darkness does not indicate God's absence. And consider this. Jesus' death, from God's perspective, and from Jesus' perspective, is not a tragic failure. It is the glorious fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. It is the Good news. In this, in this cry, Jesus is quoting verbatim Psalm 22, 1. Rabbis often quoted an entire psalm or, or referred to an entire psalm by quoting either the first or the most important verse in the psalm. And the people were to understand that the entire psalm was being referenced. Now, you may think, how can that be? If I quoted one verse except for maybe Psalm 23, uh, you wouldn't think immediately of the first psalm. This was a culture that was immersed in Scripture. This was a culture that didn't have five Bibles in their bedroom. This was a culture that had the Old Testament memorized. Just like if I began singing, and I won't, because it's even worse than normally, normal, the Brady Bunch song, I would not have to get past 
there was a lady. You know, I wouldn't have to get past that. You would know. Here, no, here's the story of a lovely lady. I wouldn't have to get past that. They got it. They understood when a rabbi did that. Such was their grasp of the Old Testament. Psalm 22 begins with lament. 21 verses of it, actually. But it ends with worship and resurrection and proclamation and victory. I believe Jesus here is proclaiming all of Psalm 22, but he only had the strength to recite verse 1. It may seem that Jesus has been forsaken, that God is absent, but truly, truly, God was never more fully and forcefully present than when Jesus hung on that cross. Our God is not an abandoning God. This is a long quote, but it's worth every word. I find it probable that Jesus, who lived by Scripture and believed that he was fulfilling Scripture, would turn to Scripture for solace when he was in desperate straits. Mark tells us that when Jesus cried out, it was the ninth hour, the Jewish hour of prayer, and Jesus prayed the prayer of the righteous sufferer who trusts fully in God's protection. Psalm 22 naturally came to mind because he was mocked. His strength was dried up. His hands and feet were pierced and his garments were divided. Jesus, therefore, did not simply let out an anguished wail of pain. It was that, but it was more than that, but deliberately quoted this lament, which moves from an expression of pain to confidence in God's deliverance. Why would Jesus cry out to an absent God unless he believed that God was indeed there to hear and able to deliver him? There's some important application here, because prayers of lament are common in Scripture. David's psalms, when he has, were on the run, were a lot of complaining to God. Job cried prayers of lament and many others. It is not the absence of faith that fuels these laments, but rather it is the presence of faith. Jesus' prayer in Psalm 22 would have been comforting to Mark's first readers who were suffering persecution. I believe we need to recover this this concept of a prayer of lament. Because when we face severe trials, God doesn't expect us to just suck it up. He wants us to fall on him. He wants us to cry out to him. He is the God who cares. He is the God who vindicates and who bore our sin. And he understands. He wants us to cry out to him. I know I've told this story before, and I almost decided not to tell it again, but if we go a couple minutes long, it's worth it, and I will cry. As my father was dying from Alzheimer's, <clears throat> I had prayed and asked God for a peaceful death. And at one point during those 12 long days, it was obvious that he was in pain, and the hospice nurse couldn't figure out how to relieve it. 
And finally, I couldn't take it anymore, and I had to leave. And I left, and I went up to my house, two houses away, and I fell on my knees for, before God, and I said, Dear God, do not let this godly man die in pain. I beg of you, do not. How can you do this to him? And I felt the Spirit of God say, Amy, are you willing to trust me? even if it means a painful death for your father. And I yelled out to God, I literally yelled out to God in my empty home, in my empty living room alone again. And I felt the Spirit of God say, can you trust me? And finally I collapsed on my living room floor and I submitted to God. Now I will tell you that they did figure it out and he didn't die in pain, but that's not the point. The point is that in my hour of despair, I called out to a God who was there and he can take it. Because the only reason you cry out to God is because you believe he's there. It is not a lack of faith to pray a prayer of lament. And then Jesus died. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Those surrounding Jesus misunderstood his words. They hope Elijah will come, but we know Elijah has already come. They try to give him wine mixed with vinegar, for it is written, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Psalm 69, 21. Then Jesus dies with a loud cry, which would have been very unusual for someone being crucified because crucified victims died of exhaustion and asphyxiation. And it may be this loud superhuman cry that caused the events that follow. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God the first human to make that confession of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The temple veil <clears throat> was the temple that separated the most holy place from the holy place. In this diagram, this is the holy place, and back here is the most holy place. Here is a cutaway of that. Oops, no, sorry. This is the holy place, and here's the temple veil that was torn in two, and behind it was the most holy place where God's presence resided. There is so much meaning in this tearing of the veil. The tearing of the veil tells us that the barrier between humans and God has been torn away. It tells us that God can now be known and we can come boldly before his throne of grace. We have 
direct access to God. It tells us that God cannot be confined to some national shrine. He can't be confined at all. It tells us that the old order of things has been done away with. The temple sacrificial system is no longer necessary. And all because of what Jesus did on that cross. Dr. Garland says, ultimately, God forsakes the temple, not Jesus. Jesus will be raised. The temple will be raised. The centurion's confession is amazing because it was something in the way Jesus died. Perhaps the powerful cry, perhaps the humility, perhaps even the weakness. But it was something in the way that Jesus died that brought this man to faith. This was the man responsible for carrying out the execution of Jesus Christ. If such a one can come to faith simply by watching how he died, anyone can believe. And I think that's the point, for it is written, all families of, that, of, of the nations will bow down before him. Psalm 22, 27. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. So some women were watching from a distance, and, and Mark tells us who they are, and Joseph courageously goes to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body because Jewish law commanded a person um, to be buried on the day that they died, but not on the Sabbath, which was why Joseph was, had to act quickly because, remember, the Sabbath, this is late on Friday, the Sabbath is Saturday. Joseph, first of all, was asking for the body of a man convicted of treason. He's associating himself with a man convicted of treason. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin that had arrested Jesus and handed him over to Pilate. It took tremendous courage for Joseph to ensure a proper burial for Jesus at his own expense, no less. And then Mark records the women who were there. Mary Magdalene, who in all four Gospels is the first to discover that Jesus has risen. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. This was almost certainly Jesus' mother, and James and Joseph were some of two of Jesus' half-brothers, James being the author of the book of James. And Salome, who would have been John and James's mother, the apostle John and James. And get this, don't ask me how I know, possibly Mary's sister and Jesus's aunt. They were all there and they all saw where Jesus was buried. So they knew where to go to look for the body. And then this happened. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. 
Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. That is proof that this story is true. Because if Mark would have been making it up, he would have had a man be the first one there. Women weren't even legal witnesses in ancient Judaism. It was stupid of them to place the women there first, unless it was true. And it is. And I know this says he is risen. And I know we say it every Easter, but the Greek doesn't say he is risen. It says he has been raised. Now, if you remember, flash back to middle school English, the difference between rise and raise, rise is something you do yourself. Raised is something that is done to you. God raised Jesus from the dead. He has been raised. This, too, was God's plan and God's doing. And the gospel ends in fear and disobedience. That doesn't make sense, does it? What are we to make of this? Well, let's talk about the ending of Mark. But let me say first, I don't believe we'll know this side of heaven. I I think it's just like I've said many times about what C.S. Lewis said, that the first thing we're going to say when we get to heaven is, of course. And it's all going to make sense. But there are three possibilities, at least three possibilities. The first is that Mark intended to end it this way. And the majority of scholars believe this, and David Garland believes this. That he he ended it here because his readers already knew the rest of the story. And that Mark leaves it open-ended on purpose. That he is calling each person to respond, to become part of the story themselves. That, that he's letting them know that a proclamation needs to be made, and if they're not going to make it, then we need to. Now, we know they did eventually tell the disciples, and the disciples found out. Now, this could be true, but there are at least a few problems with this. The first is that this would be very atypical of ancient literature. Ancient literature liked to resolve conflict. They didn't leave conflict unresolved. That's more true of modern literature, and it's anachronistic. It's it's not um, in timing correctly to read that sort of idea back into this scripture, I believe, anyway. Secondly, the gospel actually ends mid-sentence, that for they were afraid, actually the last word in the Greek is the preposition, for, gar, 
There are only three other ancient Greek um, books that end with a preposition. That would have been very unusual to just end with a preposition. It looks like it cuts off. It reads like, even in English, it reads like it cuts off. Finally, Mark had made a point of recording Jesus' predictions of his resurrection three times. Why would he not include a resurrection, at least one resurrection appearance? The second possibility is that Mark didn't finish the gospel. That he intended to write more, but something prevented it. Perhaps his own martyrdom. Perhaps the persecution going on in Rome. The third possibility, and I find this one very interesting, is that Mark did finish the gospel, but the last part was lost due to wear and tear on the original codex, on the original leaflet of the book. If that is the case, then Mark's original ending probably looked a lot like Matthew's because of two things. In the verses 6 through 8 here, Matthew repeats those verbatim from, from Mark. Um, and, and secondly, one of Mark's primary themes is his theme of Jesus' authority. And Matthew repeats every one of those stories that have to do with Jesus' authority. But there's one from Matthew that's missing in Mark, and it's this one. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If there was an original ending to Mark, it probably looked something like that. Like I said, I don't think we'll ever know for sure, but I think the second and third possibilities are at least as plausible as the first. Let's wrap it up. For it is written. What makes this story so amazing and wonderful is that God, in his love, planned all of this us. Over and over in the Old Testament, we see God prophesying exactly what happened to Jesus during his passion. What is more, Jesus freely gave himself because he loved us that much, and there was no other way to achieve our salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to be arrested and tried, 
to be mocked and beaten, to be brutally scourged and crucified, so that whosoever believes, whether he be Gentile or Jew, or even the man responsible for Jesus' execution, might never perish, but have eternal life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I don't even know what to say, but thank you. Thank you for so many things, but mostly thank you that you loved a wretch like me so much to go through what I have so pitifully described this morning. May we all come to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love you have for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.